I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the roles of the past to help us better understand our own role before God. Well, here in the second half of Exodus, we are still examining the tabernacle and all that's connected to it. We talked about the structure and the items and the layout of the building for the first three weeks. But last week, the topic shifted a bit to the articles of clothing that were to be worn by those who served in the tabernacle. And our attention was drawn to the fact that the tabernacle includes more than simply the tent and the articles of furniture contained within it. The tabernacle and the things that it reveals include within it lessons about those who serve in the tabernacle and the role that they play in the community, as well as what they wear and the service that they perform. And as we saw last week, the clothing of the high priest contains its own parable. We saw that throughout scripture, the gift of clothing is equated to being raised in honor, being beautified, especially for royalty and those connected to royalty. And it's used as a symbol of being gifted, a status of some sort. In scripture, it's usually righteousness. And all things that we as modern believers, we can reflect on and we can learn from but which is something that we have a hard time understanding just how to go about. How do we live out ideas such as having honor and righteousness given to us? What does that look like practically in our lives? Or are all of these simply good things to reflect upon, but which never really affect us? Is there more to this than just a simple reminder that we have been gifted honor, given righteousness, and are in the process of being beautified for the purpose of being joined to cosmic royalty? And the answer to all of these questions is yes. There's much more to this role of priest that applies to our lives today, and it's something that we can trace all the way back to the beginning and then all the way to the end. It's a role of mankind that's present from day eight of creation, and it is something that is revealed in the first man. And so we are going to explore this idea today in some detail and then use the text of the current portion to understand just how we can fulfill our own calling as priests who serve under the high priest of Yeshua. Because as Peter says, this is what the body of believers is being built into. 1 Peter 2.5 You also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a set-apart priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice offerings acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. We are being molded into a spiritual house for God and a holy priesthood of God. I want to be clear, Peter does not say that we are priests, but that this is the goal of the gospel. This is part of what God is doing in the world even now. But is this a new idea? Is this only a New Testament thought? Is the idea of mankind being part of a priesthood, does it arrive on the scene only in the latter parts of Scripture? Well, let's read this week's Parsha 
and then turn back to the beginning and see what Scripture has to say on this topic. Exodus 29 And this is the task you shall do to them, to set them apart to serve me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams, perfect ones, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Make these of wheat flour. And you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tent of appointment and wash them with water. And you shall take their garments and shall put on Aaron the long shirt and the robe of the shoulder garment and the shoulder garment and the breastplate and shall gird him with the embroidered band of the shoulder garment and shall put the turban on his head and shall put the set apart sign of the dedication on the turban and shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put long shirts on them, and shall gird them with girdles, Aaron and his sons, and shall put the turbans on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs for an everlasting law. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And you shall bring near the bull before the tent of appointment, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. And you shall slay the bull before Hashem by the door of the tent of appointment, and take some of the blood of the bull, and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and pour all the blood beside the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the appendage on the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, and its skin, and its dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slay the ram, and you shall take its blood, and sprinkle it all around the altar. And cut the ram in pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and place them upon its pieces and on its head. And you shall burn the entire ram on the altar. It is an ascending offering to Hashem. It is a sweet fragrance, an offering made by fire to Hashem. And you shall take the second ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall slay the ram, and take some of the blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, and on the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toe of the right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar, and some of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments, and his sons on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be set apart, and his sons and the garments of his sons with him. And you shall take the fat of the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the appendage of the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat of them, and the right thigh. It is for a ram of ordination. And one loaf of bread, and one cake made with oil, and one thin cake from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before Hashem. And you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron, and in the hands of the sons, and you shall wave them, a wave offering before Hashem. Then you shall take them from their hands, and burn them on the altar as an ascending offering, as a sweet fragrance before Hashem. It is an offering made by fire to Hashem. And you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it, a wave offering before Hashem, and it shall be your portion. And from the ram of ordination you shall set apart the breast of the wave offering which is waved, and the thigh of the contribution which is raised of that which is for Aaron, and that which is for his sons. And it shall be from the children of Israel for Aaron and his sons by a law forever, for it is a contribution, and it is a contribution from the children of Israel from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, their contribution to Hashem. And the set-apart garments of Aaron are for his sons after him, to be anointed in them and to be ordained in them. The priest from his sons in its place puts them on for seven days when he enters the tent of appointment to attend the holy place. And take the ram of the ordination and cook its flesh in the set-apart place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tent of appointment. And they shall eat those offerings with which the atonement was made to ordain them, to set them apart. But let a stranger not eat them, because they are set apart. And if any of the flesh of the ordination offerings 
or of the bread be left over until morning, then you shall burn up what is left over. It is not eaten because it is set apart. And so you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall ordain them. And prepare a bull each day as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to set it apart. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and set it apart. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar is to be set apart. And this is what you prepare on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, daily, continually. Prepare the one lamb in the morning, and the other lamb you prepare between the evenings. And one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering with the one lamb. And prepare the other lamb between the evenings, and with it prepare the grain offerings and the drink offerings in the morning for sweet fragrance, an offering made by fire to Hashem, a continual ascending offering for your generations at the door of the tent of appointment before Hashem, where I shall meet with you to speak with you. And there I shall meet with the children of Israel, and it shall be set apart by my esteem. And I shall set apart the tent of appointment, and the altar, and Aaron and his sons I set apart to serve as priests to me. And I shall dwell in the midst of the children of Israel, and shall be their God. And they shall know that I am Hashem their God, who brought them up out of the land of Mitzrayim, to dwell in their midst. I am Hashem their God. As we go through the instructions for the tabernacle, we might notice something that has caught the attention of Bible scholars for several hundred years at a minimum. In the passages between Exodus 25 and the end of Exodus 31, the instructions that are imparted to Moses in these chapters, between the finalization of the covenant and the breaking of the covenant in chapter 32, they are broken into seven pieces. Each of those pieces is identified as being separate by the phrase, and Hashem spoke to Moses, saying. And if we examine those pieces, we find that the last two, both in chapter 31, include men being appointed to the task of working on the tabernacle in part 6, correlating to day 6, and then the Sabbath being recounted in part 7, correlating to the seventh day. And this one little pointer, among a multitude of others, opens to us an entire new world of understanding, not only of the tabernacle, but the entirety of creation and man's role within the earth. For you see, Genesis 1 has been likened to a temple sanctification narrative, and the last thing that would occur in the ancient Near East in the temple was that the idol would be erected in the inner sanctum of the temple. But what makes us think that the tabernacle, and then later the temple, are a model of the world as revealed in the first two chapters of Genesis? As I said, there are a multitude of pointers that lead the reader of the tabernacle narrative down this path. First, we can start with the tabernacle structure. As we discussed back in Exodus 24, the tabernacle had three levels of proximity to God. The outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. In the same way, the world of creation is broken into these three areas of proximity to God. The outer courtyard, equating to the world beyond the land of Eden. The holy place, equating to the land of Eden. And then the holy of holies being the garden that was planted in Eden. And in the midst of the Holy of Holies, we discover that there is an item that belongs solely to God and that brings death to all that attempt to experience it. In the garden, this was the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, the tree that killed any who took of its fruit and ate. And in the tabernacle, in the innermost sanctum of the Holy of Holies, was another article that would kill any that touched it, the Ark of the Witness. Both items bearing within them the concept that there is on this earth and in the closest proximity of God, something that belongs wholly to him and not to mankind. 
But also in the Holy of Holies is something else, something that brings life when ingested in a person. In the garden, this thing was the tree of life, a thing that we read of in multiple places in Scripture. The book of Proverbs calls four things a tree of life, wisdom, the fruit of righteousness, a hope fulfilled, and a healing tongue. And Revelation speaks of the tree of life being given to those who remain righteous. But I'm not referring to these things. There is a tree of life that is proclaimed at the end of the Torah. Deuteronomy speaks of something that gives life to the sons of God. Deuteronomy 30.19 I have called the heavens and the earth as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed. But that's not all. Deuteronomy 32.45-47 And when Moses had ended speaking all the words to all of Israel, he said to them, Set your heart on all the words with which I warn you today, so that you command your children to guard to do all the words of this Torah. For it is not a worthless word for you, because it is your life. And by this word you prolong your days on the soil which you pass over the Jordan to possess. And what do we find placed inside the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place? The tablets of the covenant. The tree of life, the thing that gives life to the sons of God. And protecting this most holy place in both the garden and the tabernacle, we discover that there are heavenly creatures called cherubim. Not simply guardians of the heavenly throne room, but also guardians of the earthly throne room of God. And from Eden flows four rivers, rivers that bring life to the entire world. Rivers that we read of in connection to the temple in Ezekiel 47.1. And he turned me back to the door of the house, and look, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east, and the water was flowing from under the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. Or Revelation 22.1. And he showed me a river of water of life clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the garden was situated on a mountain. I mean, where else could four rivers of water originate in the ancient mind? And throughout Scripture, the temple was said to be on a mountain top. Isaiah 56, 7, Then I shall bring my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their ascending offerings and their sacrifices are accepted on my altar, for my house is called a house of prayer to all the peoples. Or Ezekiel 20, verse 40. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain heights of Israel, declares the Master Hashem, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There I shall accept them, and there I shall require your offerings and your first fruits of your offerings, together with all your set-apart gifts. Or Micah 4, 1. And in the latter days it shall be that the mountain of the house of Hashem is established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And the entrance to both the tabernacle and Eden was to the east. Genesis three twenty three through 24 So Hashem, God, sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove the man out, and he placed Keravim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And just as in the garden, the tabernacle was designed to be a place of God and man dwelling together. Exodus 25, 8, And they shall make me a holy place, and I shall dwell in their midst. And so through these pointers and several more, we can see that the tabernacle is itself a model of the garden. 
It is the holy place of the earth with God and man dwelling together. And a full expression of this is what the garden was and where history is heading. Heaven and earth together with God and man in communion. The garden was a temple and the tabernacle is a replica of the garden. And what do we find when we turn to Genesis 1 in regards to the role of man in this holiest of places? In Genesis 1.27 it reads, And Elohim created the man in his image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The word that's translated as image in this verse is the Hebrew word tzelem. Strong's exhaustive defines this word in this way, uh, from an unused root meaning to shade. A phantom, that is figuratively, an illusion or resemblance, hence a representative figure, especially an idol, image, vein, or show. An idol, an image of Hashem that was created in the beginning as the last step of the temple narrative of the days of creation. And after seven days of creation, or was it consecration, the image was brought inside of the temple of all the earth and set up. In Genesis 2.8, And Hashem, God, planted a garden in Eden to the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. On the eighth day of creation, Hashem took the image that he had created and set it up in the innermost parts of the earth, the place closest to him, the place where he dwells. If we, living, breathing, speaking, creative creatures who are in the image of God, were brought close to Hashem, brought into relationship with him, set up in the inner sanctum of the temple. And on that day, God gave man a role and a task. Genesis 2.15 And Hashem God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. Now, usually when we think garden and the task given to Adam, we impose the literal understanding that Adam was given the task of a gardener, caring for the plants and the trees. But as we've just discovered, the garden is as much a picture of the tabernacle, or is it the other way around, and the tabernacle is an image of the garden. Uh, regardless, man was placed there in the garden. And the word translated as work in Genesis 2.15 is the Hebrew word eved which is more commonly translated as serve. And the word translated as keep or guard is the word shamar, which is the word used to describe keeping the Torah or guarding the covenant. And these words are found throughout scripture, used in a multitude of ways and in connection to a multitude of things, but they are only ever found in close proximity to each other and connected to one central idea in three places other than this verse in Genesis. Numbers chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, and they shall serve Eved him. And they shall guard Shamar, his duty, and the duty of all the congregation before the tent of appointment, to do the service Eved of the dwelling place. And they shall guard Shamar, all of the furnishings of the tent of the appointment, and the duty of the children of Israel to do the service Eved of the dwelling place. Numbers 18, verse 4. And they shall be joined with you to guard, shamar, the duty of the tent of appointment, for all the service, aved, of the tent. But a stranger does not come near you. Or Numbers 18, verse 7. But you and your sons with you are to guard, shamar, your priesthood, for all matters of the altar and behind the veil. And you shall serve, aved. I have given you the priesthood as a gift for service, 
Eved, but the stranger who comes near is to be put to death. And that's it. Every other time in scripture, when these words are used, they are not together. And when these words are together, they are describing the duties that the Levite and the priests were charged with in connection to the tabernacle. Man was created in the image of God. Man was placed into the Holy of Holies to serve and to keep the garden and to live in proximity to God. And man, Adam, was to serve as a priest to God, a high priest, the first high priest. But that's not where this ends. Ezekiel may, and I highlight the word may, speak of Adam as high priest. Now, when we read this passage traditionally in Ezekiel 28, it's generally thought that this passage is speaking of Hasatan, or the character that we've come to call Lucifer, and I've even used it that way myself in previous teachings. But perhaps not. Let's read this passage and see what it really has to say. Ezekiel 28, 11-19 And the word of Hashem came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And you shall say to him, Thus said the master Hashem, You were sealing up a pattern, complete in wisdom and perfect in loveliness. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, topaz, and diamond, beryl, shoham, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, and gold. The workmanship of your settings and mountings was prepared for you on the day you were created. That sounds a lot like the breastplate of the high priests, right? You were the anointed cherub that covered, and I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. That sounds like the altar. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. The fall. By the greatness of your trade, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. So that I thrust you from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your loveliness. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I threw you to the earth, as opposed to heaven and earth being joined. I laid you before kings to look at you. You profaned your holy places by your many crookednesses, by the unrighteousness of your trading. Sounds like the defiling of the Garden of Eden. Therefore I brought forth fire from your midst. It has devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth before the eyes of all who see you. All who knew you among the peoples were astonished at you. Waste you shall be, and cease to be forever. Now, as I said, this passage is usually interpreted as describing the fall of Hasatan. Terms such as Keruvim and threw you to the earth. It makes us think that this speaks of the fall of Lucifer. But the passage is addressed to the king of Tyre, a human. The addressee is said to have been covered in the precious stones of the high priest. And the workmanship of these stones is said to have been put in settings and mountings. This character is said to have been placed on the holy mountain of God. The same language as Adam being placed in the garden. Is it not just as possible that this is directed towards humankind who seeks to elevate themselves in the place of God as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? I mean, okay, so even if it does speak directly about Lucifer, can we not at least learn from it something that we can apply to our own lives? 
You see, Adam was not simply a gardener in Eden. He was the high priest. And if we understand that Ezekiel 23 is speaking of Adam, then we can really draw this conclusion. But we can also point to the fact that the high priest had on his shoulders two stones of shoham and gold. And these two items are two of the only three items called out in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2.12, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium is there, and the Shoham stone. Gold and Shoham are in that verse. And the other, Bedellium, it's spoken of later in connection to manna in Numbers 11.7. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like the appearance of Bedellium. And as one last pointer to this fact, if we search the Torah from one end to the other, we could trace the genealogies of only one family line in Israel, from Adam to the conquest. Not Reuben, not Judah, not Joseph, but Levi. From Adam to Phineas. No other line in Israel can be traced from Adam to the conquest in Scripture. No other line but that of the high priest passed from father to son, from creation to the entry to the land of promise. Just as the sons of Aaron served as priests to Hashem, so too the sons of Adam acted as priests by offering sacrifices to Hashem. Genesis 4, 3-4, and it came to be in the course of time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to Hashem, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And so too, we are all sons of Adam. And all of this points to the fact that mankind's whole purpose was to serve Hashem and to fulfill the role of a priest in Eden. What that role looks like in the garden is anyone's guess. But we do have an idea of what it looks like in the current world of corruption and death. And so as priests, we all have something to learn from this chapter that describes the process that the priests of Israel went through as they were ordained to take up their role as priests. Because we are not priests yet. We are being built up into a priesthood, which means that we must learn this process and make it our own. And so as we look to Exodus 29, as the chapter opens, all of the items for the ordination were gathered together and brought to the tabernacle. A young bull, two rams, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. Thus, the ceremony begins. The first thing that is done is that they are washed with water and then they are put on their new clothes. They're cleansed with water, similar to the act of baptism, and they're dressed in clean clothing. And as we have seen before, this is the first thing that is asked of people before they worship in many cases in Torah. Genesis 35, 2-3, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and cleanse yourself and change your garments and let us arise and go to Bethel and let me make there an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Or Exodus 19, verses 10 through 11. And Hashem said to Moses, Go to the people and set them apart today and tomorrow, and they shall wash their garments and shall be prepared by the third day. For on the third day Hashem shall come down upon Mount Sinai before the eyes of all the people. And this pattern is one that was carried on down throughout the history of the worship of the God of Israel. Wash yourself. Put on clean clothing. And then the following day you can worship God in his temple. This was the process of the worshiper throughout the areas of the tabernacle and temples. And 
it's at this time that an anointing occurs. The high priest is anointed by having the holy anointing oil poured over his head. And this would have been no small amount of oil, but rather enough to cover his entire head, to get into his beard, to run down on the collar of his robes, as we read recounted in Psalm 133. And as we've spoken of previously, the oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. So first, they're baptized. Then, they put on clothes of righteousness. And then, they receive an anointing of the Holy Spirit. What is it that we read in Acts 2.38? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua Messiah for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing that occurs in this ceremony is a series of sacrifices. And if we examine this process, we'll find that all three of the major classification of sacrifices are present. The Chata'at, the Ola, and the Shlamim. In other words, the sin, the burnt, and the peace offering. Now, when we get to the book of Leviticus, we're going to talk a lot more about these sacrifices. But for now, let's just recognize all three of them are present. So first off, the bull is brought to the tabernacle. And it says, and they shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Now, this is an interesting turn of phrase because there are some who understand this phrase to be an idiom, which includes an act of confession, as it's stated in Leviticus 16.21. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and shall confess over it the crookednesses of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. If we understand it in this way, then every time that someone lays their hands on the head of a sacrificial animal, we can import the idea of confession to this act. But then again, the act of confession connected to this may be limited to the Day of Atonement, and the act of laying hands on the animal may simply be a means of identifying with the animal, a way of giving the animal your identity and allowing it to act in your place. And this introduces the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. Uh, this is an idea as old as, well, as old as the ordination ceremony for the priests of Israel. And this idea is of vital importance, as it's this idea that Paul reflects on in 1 Timothy 5.22. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in the sins of others. Keep yourself clean. Laying on of hands is a means of identifying with another, and this act is a two-way street. The one who is having hands laid on them is being identified with the one doing the laying, and vice versa. And when it comes to prayer, this is an act of community and free association. Now, in the case of the sacrifice, as we're reading here in Exodus chapter 29, the animal was then slaughtered. It was divided. The choicest bits were burned up on the altar as a sacrifice to Hashem, and the remainder was burned outside the camp as a sin offering. And as we'll see in the book of Leviticus, the sin offering has very little to do with the removal of sin, but rather has to do with the purifying of the holy items from the uncleanness of the people that was constantly encroaching on the altar and the holy things due to the proximity of us filthy humans. And we see that this is the case. Here as well, the blood of the sin sacrifice is not applied to the people at all, but it's applied to the altar. And with this, the altar would be cleansed from the impurity of those who built it and would become serviceable to be used for further sacrifices. The next sacrifice to be accomplished is what is called the Olah sacrifice, 
Once again, Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the goat before killing it. The Ola is one in which the entirety of the animal was burned on the altar. The sacrifice was seen as a gift to Hashem in some way, and alternately it's an act of fear or awe of Hashem. A recognition that everything belongs to him anyway, and so we give some of it back to him in a state of awe. Then comes a second goat. This goat acts as a peace offering, we find in verse 28. And once again, the sons of Aaron lay their hands on the head of the goat and they kill it. But this time, something different is done with the blood of the goat. The blood of this goat is put on the right ear, thumb, and toe of the priests. We've already seen the idea of blood acting as an agent of purification. And so this blood on the toe acts as a symbol of keeping their walk pure. Such as Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How would a young man cleanse his path to guard it according to your word? The blood of the thumb as a symbol of keeping your actions pure. As Philippians 2, 14-15 says, Do all matters without grumblings and disputings, in order that you be blameless and faultless, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And the blood on the ear of keeping what you take in pure. Again, Philippians 4, verses 8-9. through 9. For the rest, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is righteous, whatever is clean, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report. If there is any uprightness and if there is any praise, think on these. And what you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, practice these, and the God of peace shall be with you. And a priest is to act in this way. Remember, in that day that Exodus was written, there were no movies or shows or TV entertainment of any form. The forms of entertainment that existed were in the form of stories that were told and music. And so the blood on the ear can be extrapolated to all forms of entertainment as well as teaching and music. And this is the principle from Philippians and it applies to the priest. Let what enters your mind be pure before God. And just after this, the blood of the ram is combined with the holy oil and these things are sprinkled on Aaron and his sons and on both of them and their garments. And these things are once again representative. If the blood represents being cleansed and purified, the oil represents being sanctified and having holiness imparted. And having these combined acts to both purify and sanctify in a single act. Righteousness and holiness imparted to the priest. In our own lives, this is equivalent of washing our garments in the blood of the Lamb and being covered in the Holy Spirit. After these acts of purification and sanctification, some of the parts of the animal are put with some of the bread that was brought in, and they're burned on the altar as they form a mincha sacrifice, the fourth type of sacrifice. The remainder of the animal and the remainder of the bread become a meal for the priests. And if we read closely, in verse 26, the sacrifice is called specifically Aaron's ordination. And Aaron was the one who put his hand on the goat with the two-way identity transference between the two. And so if we consider this, this meal, this peace offering with the meat and the bread, comes a form of early communion. The priests eat of the substitutionary sacrifice of the high priest. And this meal is a form of ordination that must be entered into with a purity of mind. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 29 But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For the one who is eating and drinking unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the master. 
And for the next seven days, this is what the sons of Aaron do. They marinate in the presence of Hashem. They sit in their holy and purified state. And they eat only the holy food from the table of the Most High. Each day, another bull is a sin offering. Each day, blood applied to the altar to cleanse it through atonement. And each day, an anointing to sanctify it. Each day, two lambs. And remember, we saw in Exodus 12 that this word lamb in Hebrew can refer to either a sheep or a goat. Both are acceptable in any place that the word lamb is found in the Torah. A bread offering and a wine offering are to accompany each, and from these the priests get their portion and their meal for the seven days of ordination. The seven days of ordination, or is it creation? And it's on the eighth day that they begin to operate in their roles as priests. Just as Adam began his role as priests on the day after the seventh in Genesis 2. And the chapter ends with three verses that truly do highlight the role of the tabernacle and its connection to the Garden of Eden. Verse 43 says, I shall meet with you and sanctify the tent through my honor. Verse 44, I shall sanctify the tent and the altar and Aaron and his sons as priests. And verse 45, And you shall know that I am Hashem, and I shall dwell with you. And with this ceremony, the tabernacle, and it's ready for worship. And the worship that's accomplished there is the first step in a process. And we're not going to read of that until Leviticus chapter 9. The process of returning the earth to the state of Eden. For out of the tabernacle comes the word of God in relationship with him. And this relationship is one of mutual love. A relationship that leads to God and man walking together as we did in the garden. Leviticus 26.3 if you walk in my laws and guard my commands and shall do them. Continuing on in verse 11 through 12. And I shall set my dwelling place in your midst and my being shall not reject you. And I shall walk in your midst and shall be your God and you shall be my people. Or 2 Corinthians 6.16 And what union has the dwelling place of God with idols? For you are a dwelling place of the living God, as God has said. I shall dwell in them and walk among them, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. And the ceremony gives us the process of salvation that each believer in Messiah is to go through before serving as priests. Once again, I want to highlight, Peter does not say that we all instantly become priests the moment that we are saved. He says that we are being built into a priesthood in a house. And just as here in Exodus, as the building of the house and the consecration of the priest it takes time, so too our own consecration is a process that takes time. It begins with the cleansing, with the waters of baptism. It continues with the purification, with the blood of the Lamb, and the sanctification through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then comes the shared meal in which we partake of the substitutionary body of the high priest. And then comes the process, simply spending time in the presence of God, and working to live up to the expectations revealed in the parables of the consecration. Eat of his food, the word of God. Practice daily sacrifices. In the tabernacle, this was the incense that was burned twice a day, and the lamp that was trimmed and lit twice a day. So too, here we find daily sacrifices occurring twice a day. Spend a minimum of twice a day in the presence of God. And this is the work that's necessary to become consecrated as a priest to Hashem. 
as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 12 through 13. So that, my beloved, as you always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much rather in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. And it is through obedience and the daily relationship that we work on our salvation. And it's through this act of obedience that God works in us to create in us the desire to do his will and the ability to work his will. Or is it to serve in his good pleasure? And as we see the tabernacle in this light, we discover that as the ages have progressed, the mission has grown. It went from a tent in the wilderness to a temple in Jerusalem to a people unified in the name of the Son of God. And each time the kingdom grows, each time the mission gets grander, and each time priests are necessary to carry out the service of God and to act to cleanse this world for his arrival. And that is our job as we become priests in this age of Messiah. We are to go out into the world of corruption and bring life to a world that has become corrupt. We are to act as the image of God and to serve as priests of God. We are to cleanse the things of corruption in this world by spreading the cleansing blood of Yeshua, our perfect sacrifice, to the world. And this is the only true way to Deresh Chai, the only true way to seek life. First, we must seek Yeshua, and then we must seek to act like him before the world. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.